you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Marvin Rees is the city mayor of Bristol and uh, he's an honorary fellow of the RIBA too and he's been very outspoken about the design of cities and it made sense to speak to him about inclusion in architecture. So I asked him why is inclusive design important to him? Well I think there's a obviously a moral importance to it. Um, it's about how do you build just fair societies and you know, many of us would say that's what we're we're actually about. Um, but there's also a political and economic importance to it as well. Une- unequal societies are less resilient. We've seen this through COVID. That lack of resilience can flow its way through in health inequalities that end up costing us lots of money because we end up treating acute illnesses. They can lead to political instability, uh, which don't cost us money. Now, wherever you stand on Brexit, it's going to cost us a lot of money, and some of that's because people have not been served by the political economic order, and and also uh, they can lead to economic slowdowns as a consequence of all those instabilities. So there's an enlightened self-interest, even if we don't do it for moral reasons. Um, And and I think physical inclusion is absolutely mirrored and partnered uh, by economic, social, political inclusion. When you talk about inclusive design from an economic perspective, do you think that this is the driving force to actually bringing about change? How much do we really need to also talk about the moral um, imperative? Well, we need to talk about the moral imperative, but I don't like getting stuck on the moral imperative because we're not here, but, but you know, begging people, asking them to do nice things. Uh, what we're saying is if people are in charge of uh, sectors of our society, do not know how to build resilience into those sectors, then actually they're, le- they're building a vulnerable society. We would never really allow any of our managers to say, I'm going to build fragility into our banking system, would they? <laughs> or I'm going to build fragility into our education system. We wouldn't allow that. Um, so the moral imperative, yes, uh, but we're also focusing on the political economic importance and the, the, you know the way places are built, um, the way people places are designed are amongst the biggest determinants of life chances and inequalities and that those levels of resilience. So, what does inclusive design look like for you when you have the in the architecture in the the built environment? Listening to this, listening to you, what do you want them to be thinking about? I, so, I wouldn't say. It looks like any particular type of building, but it looks like spaces where we see different types of people from different types of background, that we build spaces in which people are able to uh, live in those spaces and be there like they own them, uh, not be there like guests. I still feel like a guest in some parts of the city and I'm the mayor of the city, but I, you know, but I still make those micro calculations every day when I go somewhere um, as to whether this is for me or not for me. When you see the uh, 
texture, if you like, of the city change as as you move through it. What is it about the spaces that are inclusive compared with those that feel exclusive to you? What's the difference between them? I, to be honest, I'm not even sure if it's about the physical spaces. It's about the affordability. So take a place like St. Paul's. All right. So when I was a kid, St. Paul's, the place of two rebellions in, in the 80s and, and all the other headlines as, as goes on with it, is currently in a process of being gentrified. So whereas once it was felt to be a no-go zone, it's now seen as cool and kind of the older communities that were there are being are disappearing, they're kind of almost evaporating. Uh, now, the physical layout of the place hasn't changed. What's begun to change is the house prices. And so what part can architecture and the built environment play in affordability? Well, we need the breakthroughs, don't we, on how we get a decent share of affordability for mixed communities. In Bristol, we've said that um, we're not looking for, you know, developments that are 100% affordable. That creates a ghetto of affordability. What we want are mixed 10 years, all mixed up, you know. So what we need is people who come up with those uh, those solutions. How do we come up with designs uh, when, we're, when we're doing the new builds that actually offer those mix of 10 years um, so that we can get a good share of affordable within our developments? The, the challenge, or I guess the challenge of urban designers uh, in look, is in looking at the old city is in how they begin to uh, grab hold of the economic model that surrounds uh, physical spaces because physical spaces don't just mean what they're designed to mean they meet the, there are lots of things that determine what they mean but in part they had a product of the interaction between those physical spaces and inequality the economy so anyone who's serious about planning cities and spaces has to have a mind not just to what nice buildings look like because be perfectly frank I find some of those conversations near the preserve of if I'm perfectly frank even in Bristol some old guys sitting around see a young black guy and think oh he's not very stylish is he He doesn't know culture like we do so I'm not you know those conversations I'm interested in people who are also thinking about how do we grab a hold of the economy and some of those wider inequalities that give meaning to the physical things that we build whether we want those things to have that meaning or not but look, let's be frank about it. You know, as a profession, it's not an inclusive profession, is it? Right. And I bump into this. And actually, the profession does need to get on top of on top of that. So some of the pushback I've had is basically people saying, oh, Marvin, someone wrote an article saying, you know, basically it was quite a racist and a snobbish article saying I was dazzled by the bright lights of London and Manchester and I want to plaster skyscrapers all over the city. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're doing is we're saying we're, four, we're 42 square miles. 460,000 people growing to 550,000 by the middle of this century. We have uh, 15,000 people on the housing waiting list, over 1,000 families in temporary accommodation, one in four children uh, living in poverty, and we're a city that's, that's uh, you know, sits at racial fractures. We need to solve our housing crisis. We need more density, and we don't want to sprawl and build in a really chaotic, inefficient way. We need the profession to actually come with that because too often the voice from the profession has been these are the kind of buildings we like. Don't build tall buildings. Well, great. Well, what are you going to say then to the, the you know the family I meet that's got three kids in a one bed bedsit temporary accommodation? To have to be credible, the profession needs to join the whole conversation about the complexity of social challenges we face. When we find that common ground that we're all respecting the the sheer range of 
challenges we're trying to take on in, in planning our city's futures, then we can have a really productive conversation. But I, I think so part of that can be taken on uh, by the profession becoming more diverse, having people in it who've come from backgrounds when they've lived in a refuge and know what housing insecurity is rather than just going to you know nice schools, nice universities, and then you know have an appreciation for fine buildings around the world. And I'm not saying everyone's in there. I'm being quite, <laughs> I'm being quite uh, blunt in my description. But it can feel like that when you're on the receiving end of, of, of the lobby of, you know, guys in corduroy trousers and <laughs> you're black telling, polo necks. You, you don't care about the way the city looks. I do, but I also care about where the people have got a roof over their heads. You know. <laughs> so for you, success in around inclusive design is that happy medium between. Um, you know, something that that looks good isn't imposing on 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 the city, but provides the housing that it needs. How do, how do we respect the city? You know, uh, and, and its aesthetic appeal. Get that matter of taste and all that. But how do we meet the needs of people today? You know, it was only uh, how do we make sure people got access to good quality homes as a base for a good quality life, a good trajectory in life. All those things need to be dealt with at the same time. And I just I think we're in an age now where no one really who takes themselves seriously should no one should, I don't I don't think many would. No nobody takes them seriously will be single issue. Like all I am is about physical layout and expect the physical layout to work like that. Because you have to take account of the social social, you have to take account of history. You know, when you design something, if you design the right thing in the wrong place, in the wrong cultural context. The product of that interaction will not be what you meant it to be. We've had a history that, that's full of that. So having that fullness, that fullness of appreciation, that that multiple uh, worldview, that diverse worldview available at your fingertips, I think is going to be absolutely um, essential. You know, at the moment we're trying to deliver decarbonisation, the recovery of nature, and an inclusive economic recovery. The three cannot be separated with a growing world population. That's our challenge right now. So for you, if you had one message really for the architecture, just one, <laughs> uh, for, for the architecture and built environment sector around inclusive design, what would that one message be? Well, first of all, I would probably issue a, a hasty apology for my corduroy trousers uh, joke. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm also putting them in, in black polo necks. So here we go. That's right, that's so a stereotype. <laughs> my, my point would be, you know, let's talk, let's please reach out and work with people and let's talk about complexity. And and we, we I, I think it's one of the most important professions in the world right now. Good urbanization will mean that we uh, potentially, cities have the ability to host a growing world population. You know, we're gonna be at 10 billion over the coming decades. We have to find a way of the planet hosting those people in a healthy way, socially, politically, economically, environmentally. And and so I think that it, uh, the whole world of, of architecture and um, urban planning are amongst the most important professions uh, that we have. Um, and, and but that means that it absolutely has to understand the raw material it's working with, uh, not just the materials and forces that hold buildings up or have them fall down and what they look like, but how it interacts with existing inequalities. Uh, the the you know, global climate-driven migration crisis that is looming upon us, climate change and all the rest of it. So draw on that um, diversity of thought and worldview um, into the profession. 
Lots of interesting points from Marvin Rees there about what inclusive design is for him as a city leader. To talk about inclusive design and some of the things Marvin was saying there, I have an excellent panel of Julie Fleck, Zoe Partington and Ian McKinnon. I'll get them to introduce themselves in a moment. But first, let me just check out what they're wearing. And to be fair, none of them are architects, uh, but you are inclusive design. They're all very colourful, very colourful. Um Julie, you literally wrote the book on this. So let's start with you. Who is Julie Fleck and what does inclusive design mean to you? Uh, hi, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me along this morning. I'm so glad I put on a really colourful top this morning, actually. <laughs> to show how um, non-architect yeah. you are. <laughs> I love lots of colour. So um, I, I'm actually, I trained as a town planner, in fact, um, but soon specialised in, in access, what it was then called 30 years ago, access for disabled people. And I've specialised in inclusive design, but with a very strong emphasis on making the world more accessible for, for disabled people and older people and the people that we tend to forget when we design. Um, and that's what my book is all about, is are you an inclusive designer? Do you really have the right approach and attitude um, to really think about the diverse and a uh, huge difference that we all have in our lives. We all are very, very different from each other. And for me, inclusive design is very much about putting people first, making sure we're designing for everybody, for people, and really thinking about the diversity um, in our communities. And <clears throat> that's what I've been trying to do. I worked for the Corporation of London for about 15 years, um, putting uh, physical access improvements around the square mile in the city of London, um, and although I've left, um, I'm, at, I'm basically retired now, having just written my book, but I was so pleased to see St Paul's Cathedral, one of the most iconic buildings in the whole country, have um, uh, their north transept entrance has now been made accessible with the design of two um, substantial but very elegant ramps. So um, uh, really major changes we've seen in the last 30 years. I then moved to the um, Greater London Authority and I was their inclusive design manager responsible for policies in the London plan. So um, really pushing forward and we've just heard about the difficulties with housing. Uh, one of the key things I think we've still not got right is how we um, uh, design new homes and how we are dealing with existing buildings. So despite being um, uh, pushing for better uh, designs and better implementation, better action for 30 years. We've still got an awful long way mm, to go. Mm. Um, that hasn't said very much about me, actually, but I, I hope that's a good start. So. Thank you. Thanks very much, Julie. Zoe, if I can ask you, who is Zoe Partington and what does inclusive design mean to you? Right. Um, yeah, thank you for inviting me and um, lovely to meet everybody. Um, can you hear me OK, Marsha? Is that okay? loud and clear? Thank you. Oh, that's good. Right. Um, well, I, well, I um, obviously I'm Zoe Partington and I work with Joss Boyce. We co-direct something called Disordinary Architecture. And we've been doing that for about 10, 10 15 years, probably. Um, but prior to that, I uh, very early on, I, I think I lost my sight when I was studying uh, philosophy, architecture and visual art. And I found it... Um, quite a journey to understand the visual world because I'd lost my sight. And I very quickly, because of that, got involved with scope. And then I was taken on as a trainee for the Royal National Institute for Blind People. And because I was interested in art and culture and architecture anyway, particularly the history of architecture, I started to work with somebody called Peter Barker at something called the Joint Mobility Unit in London at RNIB. This is going back sort of 25 years ago now. 
um, probably 30. And Peter was absolutely brilliant because he understood as he was blind and um, had a sort of engineering, civil engineering background that uh, document part M was completely useless for things like sensory access and the development of designs and buildings, urban spaces, and it needed reviewing and it needed looking at and dialogue needed to happen. And I thought that was um, just really exciting, really interesting because I was very aware of it myself. But also what I noticed, and this was when I was working with Joss Boyce, I took Joss into the Reba bookshop actually, and this was probably 10, 15 years ago maybe. And I just said, right, try and find me something exciting on inclusive architecture in this bookshop. And obviously she spent an awful long time trying to locate a publication like that. And there wasn't anything, it was either about health or it was written by an access auditor. I mean, they were useful in some ways, technical guidance, but there's nothing exciting, nothing that was creative, nothing that was vibrant, nothing that had these joint voices between disabled people who were creative professionals and an architects. And so that's where I started, really. Thank you. Thanks for that, Zoe. And Ian, if I can ask you, who is Ian McKinnon and what does inclusive design mean to you? Yeah, well, it's, first of all, it's nice to hear Peter Barker's name come up because yeah. I worked I worked with Peter as well. I know Julie did, so that's really nice, actually. Um, I I mean, you know, I, I am currently director of inclusive design for an organisation called the Global Disability Innovation Hub, or GDI Hub for short, because it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and that's ultimately kind of born out of the Paralympic Legacy Programme from London 2012. Uh, in East London on the Olympic Park uh, over in Stratford in East London. Um, so we're a research practice and teaching centre uh, with lots of partners involved and doing a huge amount of interesting work, which I could talk for hours about, but uh, I'll spare you that right now. But yeah, so so I, I do that. I, I was the access um, and inclusive design lead for the Olympic Park post 2012. So for all the development that took place on and around the park uh, in Stratford, Post-2012, I was the inclusive design champion for that. So, you know, that role involved uh, writing and updating the inclusive design standards, facilitating the built environment access panel, of which Peter Barker was was part of that. Um, and, yeah, it was a tremendous experience. And we're, we're now hopefully kind of sharing that knowledge and learning and experience uh, in the work that we now do mostly internationally, particularly in developing countries. Thanks. And so, uh, you know, we do have the, the heavyweights, if you like, of inclusive design with us this morning. And I was reading a really, really great article uh, in the Architects Journal before I started this role, actually, uh, is disability architecture's final taboo? And I reached out to the four architects um, with a disability featured in that article, one of the, which is Ben Stevens, a, a deaf architect. And he said, ideally, there needs to be two metre spacing between people for effective lip reading. And it's the same for sign language. So we need wider corridors, uh, also the right wall colours. It's hard to read the hands of a person if the wall colour is similar to that of a skin tone. And he said another problem is right angled corners. Um, someone could walk into another person coming the other way as a deaf person can't hear footsteps. So ideally corners should be curved or chamfered. In your opinion, if I can start with you, Julie, are architects thinking enough about this stuff? <laughs> I think it's really, uh, it's very easy to, to blame the architect, if you like, and to say, well, you should have designed it differently. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. One of the projects I did after the um, Olympic Paralympic Games was to work on one of the 
government's legacy programmes and we try to um, uh, 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 require all of the professional institutions to teach inclusive design at university and even at school and before, you know, so that all of the built environment professionals had a good understanding and a good grasp of inclusive design. I don't think there's enough good education around the whole issue of inclusion. And so, um, uh, you know, and, and it's very difficult because there are so many things that we all need to know. We can't all be experts, but there are a lot of experts out there. And I think that's the other thing that we need to embed inclusive design experts into the project team. And where you see really good inclusive design in buildings, it's usually because um, either the architects themselves have really embraced the whole um, issue and really understood it and have got the right attitude and have involved disabled people and, and older people and others with diverse and different um, uh, perspectives and experiences to their own. Um, uh, and, and if if you you know if you continue to just design in 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 a very narrow way and just meet the building regulation, then you will not get it right. And I think that's a you know your example of 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 how deaf people will move around a building. One of the examples in my book is Frank Frank Barnes School for Deaf Children. Beautifully designed building, very accessible. It was designed in conjunction with the children themselves and with their parents and with the teachers, etc., and with an expert, an inclusive design expert, uh, Chris Harrowell, who's deaf himself and an architect. Um, and actually what my message really is, don't just do the designs with the curved corners and the balustrades where you can see through so you can continue reading or doing a sign language interpretation as you're walking around the building with the right colours and the lighting and all of, all of those techniques. They can be in every single building. It doesn't need to be in a specialist's place where you're going to have a lot of deaf people. It can be absolutely everywhere. So I think it's learning and understanding that and then working with it. Um, so... But it's also the client. You have to really work with the client. And I think there is, uh, you know, the business case, which we all um, heard from, from Marvin um, about, about uh, the cost of things and the business case is really important because a, a building that is more accessible to a much broader, diverse range of, of, of users is going to be a much more successful building. And I don't think we've really grasped that, um, that value of an accessible building and an inclusive building um, yet. So there's still a lot of work to do there. Julie was saying about how you need to involve other voices in design. Um, Zoe, what were your reflections on that? I totally agree. But I, I, one of the issues that we have is that um, disability culture and disability heritage isn't taught in schools, nor in art schools, nor in the architecture schools. And also disabled people haven't been present necessarily in schools. So they've been segregated to other schools. So those voices are still not there in many ways. It's changing, it's getting better, but we've really got to shift that. We've really got to change that. And I think, I mean, it's very, very obvious when I'm working with people and I can recognize immediately through the language, the conversations, the dialogue, the type of art and culture that they're watching, whether they have any idea about the disabled community and insights from disabled people. And one of the other issues is if we are including disabled people within these establishments and institutions, it needs to be across everything. So we need to see role models, we need to see architecture tutors that are disabled people or deaf people or neurodivergent. It needs to be not hidden away, I think, because people are still... Um, quite reticent about being singled out or by, you know, being isolated or, and, and the other thing as experts, I mean, I found this that sometimes as a disabled person, I want to curate an exhibition 
things like functional access or the space and the environment, it should automatically be accessible. I find it very strange that, you know, after guidance and technical information has been there for the last 30 or 40 years, we're still repeating those things. And actually, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in, you know, disability art and disability culture being embedded within what we're doing so that we are creating better spaces, better environments, using better materials, thinking about acoustics, um, for deaf people, all sorts of people with sensory access issues mm. and older people. And it's just, you know, it's making it, it's making it part and parcel of every day so that those conversations are there. And the other issue is because disabled people aren't present in our architecture schools as much as they should be, we've still got that missing link. So those conversations of natural dialogue are not happening. It's always a little bit you know, read this report or go and look at something online and then we'll all come back and talk about sensory access. And there's still huge gaps in it because people are missing the finite detail, which actually is really important. Yeah, and here on Reba Radio, we've really recognised the the sort of absence and the, and, the, and the relative quietness of the disability voice, really trying to amplify that. And uh, we're going to have Amy Francis-Smith on um, tomorrow as well. Um, but in, Ian, if I can ask you, in the world of design, um, those thinking about inclusiveness generally do jump straight to considering accessibility, um, you know, things like colour palettes and, and guidelines and so on. And I wonder really in today's day and age whether gender, cultural identity can be ignored when it comes to inclusive design because uh, people are thinking more about accessibility rather than inclusiveness in a more overarching sense. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I, the, there is a an issue at times with with silos, I would say, you know, and, and with picking it up one kind of topic at a time and you have, at the moment, you may have um, certain experts, so-called experts on design teams that will come in and they have responsibility for a, you know, section of, of it, you know, and, and if you're lucky, you'll have an access consultant as was or an inclusive design consultant come in and look at disability inclusion and and you would you would hope that things issues around gender and faith and things would 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 be picked up as part of that but it it can feel a little bit siloed at times and I, and I suppose a reflection back to kind of what's been said about education being so important um that, that is massively important I think there's a, for me I always view it a little bit as there's a this is a kind of short term view and, and and goal and in a, a longer term one I think the longer term one for me does sit squarely with education to ensure that that people key decision makers and that includes your designers have that grounding you know as as Zoe says in disability culture and heritage but also in good inclusive design practice you know Mm -hmm. and from for the latter part in terms of good inclusive design practice that's something that we are trying to do we've we've got launched a a a new master's course uh, awarded by University College London UCL which is a master's course called Disability Design and Innovation, within which is a is an optional module um, that I teach, which is on inclusive design and environments. And that's in its third year, and it's a way of beginning to kind of um, build on um, what does exist, which is very, very little in terms of good kind of quality inclusive design education for, for designers, for architects, for planners. And really, I think that any, any design discipline and all design disciplines, including architecture, 
you know, undergraduate studies year one, you should be getting a, a, a fund, a core module course on in, inclusive design. And then it's, it should be ingrained. The foundation is there. And whether that's your passion or not, you know, people get into design for different reasons. At least that foundation is there. And so eventually when they come to make these key decisions, they have that awareness. And that's at the moment that is sorely lacking. Yeah, And Julie, you're quite sort of, um, you know, passionate. You mentioned a little bit earlier about how it, it does start with the education piece. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, one of the messages in my book is, as Zoe said, we've been trying to get this right for the last 50 or 60 years, actually. You can go right back to the 1950s when people started to, to, to look at why our buildings were inaccessible and why people were being excluded, not because of their, their health or their impairment or their particular circumstances, but because of the way we design. And, and, and actually, through my career over the last 30 odd years, you know, I started off as access officer for disabled people. It was very much about special provision um, for disabled people. And then gradually through the 1990s, it's changed to um, uh, inclusive design. And actually, we don't want separate or special provision. We want it to be absolutely inclusive, inclusive right from the very beginning, so that whatever your particular preference or needs or circumstances are, you can move, um, you can arrive at a building and move through a building in exactly the same way as everybody else. And that was one of the things that that we really tried for in the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games was that everybody had an accessible um, experience. And it is about the experience that people get. And if you haven't had that knowledge and understanding and you don't get, have that right attitude, it is really about attitude and, and knowledge and skills, which, which only starts at, at university when you're starting your architectural planning or surveying course. If you don't really get it, then when you come to do your designs, you will make compromises. And if you compromise, you will exclude. And if you exclude, you discriminate. And that should be illegal. It's been illegal since 1995. And I think there's problems with our equality legislation that needs changing as well. I get so mm. frustrated just walking around South London where I live. There are new cafes being refurbished in buildings that still don't have accessible toilets. There's a, an office block that's just been turned into a block of flats and it's got three stairs up to the front door. Well, that should not happen in 2021. It should be absolutely basic access stuff that's been in the building regulation since 1987. Why do we not get it right? You know, we don't provide that respect and that dignity to, to all of our community. Um, and that comes down to our, to our attitude and our understanding and our knowledge and skills. And if we don't get those knowledge, skills, attitudes embedded, as Ian was saying, right at that very beginning and the best way to do that is to involve a diverse group of people in your in your design team when mm. you're consulting as well so um, I've always worked with an access group but that's very much you know a sort of uh it's a bit it's lip service really it doesn't really change what really needs to change is those people with the power with the money who are commissioning buildings at the very beginning whether that's the government turning an old uh, job center into a block of flats or a or a developer building 500 new homes it should be with the with the, uh, the the developer at the very beginning who should be requiring inclusive design right from day one right from you know stage zero so zoe i mean uh, you know those things that julie talking about they're very much you know embedding these ideas and uh the culture into the education of uh architecture in the built environment that's that's going to be a few even if we started that tomorrow which i really hope we would 
um, it's going to be a few years for that to filter into the real world. So what would you say architecture and the built environment need to do today? You know, they get a, they get a commission, they get a project, uh, it's landing on their desk tomorrow morning. What do they need to do to, to make sure that that is as inclusive as it could possibly be? Well, the first thing, you can have a look at the Disordinary Architecture website and look at all the millions of resources and books and things that people can read to very quickly find out how um, how disabled people want spaces and environments to be designed and deaf people. Um, you can also bring disabled people that understand architectural language, I think that's also important, onto those teams to work with people. Um, and I think getting a cross-section is really useful because... It doesn't mean one disabled person understands every other disabled person's perspectives. Some people do because they've been working in that field a very long time. So it's really about um, um, yes, asking the right people to support you and to help you in the, in the project that you're about to start or be involved with. There's lots of information online. There's lots of talks that people do around this, this area. So I don't think it's... It's not impossible anymore because we've got such amazing access to the to the internet and to the web. And Ian, you know your your view on you know what people could be doing. There's no shortage of information available. There's um, you know Julie's book. Are you an inclusive designer? Amongst other materials, <laughs> yeah. you know that Zoe mentioned there her, the, her um, website as well. It, you know what, does, what do you want those architects and built environment? Um, contractors and, and those to be thinking about right now as they look at their, their new projects? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's, it's quite a difficult question, really, but I, I would hope that, that they are just being, being able to kind of rise above the detail of the day-to-day jobs to think a little bit more about the bigger picture, about what they're actually trying to do with the project, what they're actually trying to provide. What is this that we're building? You know, if it's if it's a if it's a housing development, if it's if it's a public building, who who is going to use this on a day, daily basis? You know, who are we building this for? And then make sure that you go and you speak to those people. And when you speak to the local communities, the local people who will be engaging with that place or space, whatever it is, on a daily basis, make sure you speak to a wide range across the demographic of the local community that's going to use that space and just make sure your engagement is genuine and real. Um, that, as I said before, that was part of my role in the Olympic Park was to facilitate those conversations between design teams coming in and local disabled people who lived around the park, who had a vested interest, who were going to use these places every day once they were built. And in those conversations, almost every time was where little gems would fall out, little nuggets would fall out that would make demonstrable change to the design that was in its benefit for everyone and that the design team would always look back on and think, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense to me now, but I had no idea. It's not through malice, it's usually through ignorance that that we find ourselves in positions where designs are done and buildings are built that are not fit for purpose. So I would ask them to have open minds to do genuine engagement with a cross-section of the demographic that's going to use the project that they're building, really listen to them, take it on board, and use that as, as a fuel, as a catalyst to innovate and to design the best design they can. And I guarantee you it will go on to win awards and it will be more sustainable in the long run because it will be require less adaption or, or future changes down the line And every e- time. Ian, that awards are a particular driver, but... 
um, you know, to pick up on a point that Julie made earlier, the economics, the money, you know, there, there, there is a perception that doing things well, inclusively, requires more cash. Uh, yeah. Is that for real? Is that a, 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 a real perception? And um, also, you know, is there a sense that... Um, People want to try to, you know, especially those in, in building and construction might try to make those compromises in order to to maximise their profit. Yeah, there is a we often get asked for the economic argument for this. And, and there is a strong economic argument. There's uh, there's reports that I'm going to forget the, the reference, but there's you know, after this, we can direct you to it. But essentially, some good stats are. In terms of it, it shouldn't necessarily increase your, your overall budget, but you do need to allocate budget to this. You need to have resource um, to make sure that good inclusive design is being done. And you may need to have some specific facilities that, that, that may have, have cost, but it should not increase your overall budget. You just need to allocate that budget. And if you do it at the start of the project, the impact would be less. And good stats on this. There was a research done um, by the, the RCA, years and years ago that says for any design project um, to, to make those changes and to embed inclusive design early would say cost like one times like the, the, the amount, like say times one, to do it post-completion will cost you 10,000 times more. And, and you will have to make those retrofits if you build something that's not fit for purpose. You will have to go back and retrofit and it will cost you 10,000 times more. Also, the World Health Organization has a stat from research it's done saying that again if you embed inclusive design at the start of your project then it could cost up to one percent of your overall budget so again if you factor that in it's only one percent you know roughly of your overall budget to then try and factor that in further down the line and um, beyond detailed design once you begin construction it will cost you anywhere up to 20 percent of your budget so do it early it will cost you less and you will reap the rewards because as we've shown there are economic benefits and as much that again if it's a public building you're opening it up to a much wider market much wider audience it'll be more sustainable you won't have to retrofit so it can be open for longer um because it's fit for purpose so there, there is there is an, an economic argument that's there it's sometimes just a little bit hard to find um zoe do you come a, across this you know quite a lot this people ha having this perception that it's going to cost them more to try to be more inclusive budgets are used um as a barrier so it you know it links into medicalizing the analysis of how a disabled person how we might change the environment for a disabled person and one of the issues for me around the budget and the cost implications you know disabled people constantly have to fill out forms to justify being a disabled person and then be given money to fix things that are in our environment and spaces that are inaccessible to us so it's a very odd concept that we have in place and when we look at the budgets if you work with disabled people that are knowledgeable you can reduce costs significantly because their idea of accessibility may cost a lot less than people that haven't necessarily understood the process of wayfinding or what does mean or what would make good access so it also comes to evaluation it's evaluating these things that are put in place and looking at the evaluation of it and i just think that you know we still institutional discrimination is really quite rife and i think until we shift that until we start to get people to think differently about where the problem lies 
it's going to be quite hard to shift thinking and obviously good examples shift thinking and that's great the more that we can get those into spaces and environments and, and like Julie was saying you know buildings and cafes and restaurants museums and galleries they're still going up and they're still inaccessible mm. and it's surprising because if you were in an architecture school you wouldn't ask someone to design well you might to get to think differently <laughs> but you wouldn't sort of think about you know, let's design a space where we're going to exclude people. How would we do this? So I don't think anybody starts from that. But actually, if you don't understand um, what's missing because you don't know what you don't know because you haven't asked, uh, you will immediately put barriers in place into the building and the urban spaces you're designing and even the gardens and parklands. Mm, and Julie, if I can give you the final word, you know, oh. this is an opportunity to, um, to, to, to really change our spaces so that we can create an inclusive society. So that there's a real message of hope that we can give to architects and the built environment if they were to take on board what you've been saying. But just just quickly before I answer that, one really good example was during the 2012 when um, uh, London was trying to um, improve uh, the visitor experience. London uh, Transport for London installed ramps at the um, uh, on certain platforms so that people could get on and off a tube without having the step down. And of course, what they found is not only did that make it easy for wheelchair users and people with trams and pushchairs, but actually everybody gets on and off the train much quicker. So if all of our station platforms were level with the train, the whole transport system would be transformed and the whole shift of passengers, et cetera, would be speeded up and it would be far more efficient. So we tend to concentrate on you know, the wheelchair user who we possibly never see. But actually, if you make it accessible, it will benefit absolutely everybody. And I, I think the most important thing for me is that people think about the people, as Ian was saying, as Zoe was saying, think about the people. But it's about providing choice. You know, we worked out the principles of inclusive design 20 years ago, and it is about putting people at the heart of the design process. It's about providing choice. A single solution does not work for everybody. A ramp into a building does not work for everybody. People want steps, they want escalators, they want lifts, we want choice. And it needs to be there up front. I don't want to walk in and see a flight of stairs and signs to a lift at the back of the building. The lift should be beside the staircase, absolutely integrated. I don't want to see a revolving door and a side door that's always locked. I want to see automatic doors that we can all just walk through and enjoy, wheel through, whatever. You're listening to Reba Radio. Real inclusive, brilliant action.